morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you all today as we look at God's Word, and a special welcome if you're new or visiting. It's lovely to have you here with us. Uh, For those of you who are feeling a bit tired, struggling with the loss of an extra hour of sleep due to daylight saving, you'll be pleased to know I won't be doing any Greek lessons this morning. Um, But how about I pray for us again as we look at God's Word. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this great vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, and we pray this morning that we truly will see who Jesus is, Lord. Show us him in all his greatness and strengthen our faith, our hope, and our love for him, and we pray it all in his name. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you hear the name Jesus? For most of us, I think it's fair to say that Six-pack abs, biceps of steel, and thighs strong enough to to crush a gas bottle between them, they're probably not the first things that come to mind. Unless, of course, your pastor, Yang Dalyun, who uh, a few years ago uh, built this statue uh, for a Christian sculpture park in South Korea. Uh, Some of you would have seen this uh, before. And, you know, like, I'm sure that Jesus was pretty fit. Um, he spent a lot of time uh, walking around in the Middle East. There's no cars back then. We're living in a time pre Maccas, pre KFC. Um, but you've got to say, this is a, a level of buffness that is completely ridiculous. Uh, I like to joke that if, you know, Jesus was truly this strong, uh, there's no way that the Romans who crucified Jesus would have needed to get someone to help him carry his cross. That Jesus could have been curling the cross. You know, he'd be squatting with it. He'd be doing all sorts of exercises with it. Now, in one sense, uh, this image, it's pretty easy to laugh off. It's so ridiculous uh, that it's hard to take seriously. But I think it shows a common behaviour. People all over the world want to make Jesus in an image that matches what we value in life, that matches our agenda, uh, what we think the world needs. And so if you value strength, well, you'll have a buff Jesus. Uh, If you uh, want a gentle Jesus, well, you'll have him holding lambs and bunnies. Uh, There's right-wing gun-toting Republican Jesus and uh, left-wing hippie Jesus. Uh, There's even an Islamic Muslim Jesus that you can find out there. Yes, all over the world, people make Jesus into the image they want, one that they are comfortable with. But who is the real Jesus? What is he truly like? Well, in today's passage, uh, John receives a vision from Jesus himself about who Jesus truly is. It's a big picture of Jesus, one where we see him in all his strength and power and glory, one that uh, buffed Jesus just couldn't do justice. Uh, We see Jesus, uh, the all-powerful, reigning God, the all-conquering judge. He wants us to see him in all his bigness so that we won't be tempted to go elsewhere or doubt his ability to save us. And yet at the same time, uh, Jesus also shows us his loving side, one that no picture of a Jesus hugging sheep 
could capture. A Jesus we can trust in. A Jesus we can take refuge in, find safety in. Jesus, our loving protector. And so, as Simon said, you would have received an outline uh, as you came in. Uh, That's there to help you follow on and you can take notes if you want. Uh, But before we jump into our passage, uh, let me just set a little bit of context for the book of Revelation. As we are doing a full series uh, in Revelation, just uh, these two weeks over the school holidays, uh, we won't go into all the background details and all the stuff about how to read uh, Revelation. Uh, but basically, uh, the thing to know is uh, this letter was written uh, by the Apostle John uh, to a group of seven churches uh, in a part of the Roman Empire called Asia, nowadays uh, called Turkey. And it was a time when Roman persecution of Christians was really starting to ramp up again. Now, Christians in the past had already experienced some persecution. Uh, The first Christians, the the Jewish Christians, uh, they were uh, rejected by many of their own uh, fellow countrymen uh, who didn't believe that Jesus was the promised king. And about 30 years before this, Emperor Nero had come along and and he was really terrible to Christians for a few years. He had some torn apart by wild animals. He had others uh, burnt alive as human torches. Yet it wasn't all the time. And they'd actually had a few years now of relative peace. But sadly for them, that wasn't going to last. Things were starting to ramp up again. In fact, uh, the whole weight of the Roman Empire was starting to bear down on them. And for several centuries, it would just go from bad to worse. And, and they'd cop it in several different ways. They'd cop it from the government. Uh, for about a hundred years, uh, the, the emperors of Rome uh, had been worshipped as gods, but now they were starting to insist that you need to do this. And each of these seven towns had uh, their own temple to the emperor. And, and the emperors were starting to say, if you don't come and worship me, well, there's going to be some pretty drastic consequences. So they were being persecuted by the government. Uh, They were losing their jobs because even when the government wasn't uh, enforcing these rules, uh, most guilds for tradesmen or or for merchants, uh, they would have Caesar worship as part of their meetings. You would go along and, uh, and to be part of these groups, you had to worship Caesar as well. So you might not get killed by the government, but if you didn't go along with it, you would lose your job. You wouldn't be able to engage in commerce. You you wouldn't be able to trade. You wouldn't be able to feed your family or provide an income. And even the general population was starting to really hate Christians. You see, uh, they believed in a range of gods, and their gods were, to put it bluntly, they they were petty. They were ill-tempered. They were kind of snappy jerks, really. And so you had to keep them on side. You had to make them happy. You had to offer them sacrifices and worship them all the time. Because if you didn't, well, they'd send a plague or a storm or an earthquake or something like that to to make you angry. And and these Christians, well, they weren't worshipping these other gods. And so... Oof, you guys are endangering our whole society. You're endangering us. There's a plague that's going to come if you don't join us. How evil can you be? Why wouldn't you do this? And so everywhere they were going, they were starting to cop it. And in contrast, they would have seen the might and glory of Caesar and the Roman Empire everywhere. Rome, it was powerful, it was prosperous, it had been a power for over 600 years and it seemed like this power would never end. For many of these Christians, 
it would have felt like they were on the wrong side of history, that they joined the losing team. And the temptation to give in would have been great, to end the suffering, to make life easier, to get with the right side of history. And John, uh, before he begins the vision uh, from verse 9, notes, uh, they're not alone in this. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, John, as he begins his vision, notes, I too am suffering for the Lord Jesus. For preaching the gospel, he had been banished to a small island of Patmos. But note how he describes his suffering here. He doesn't just say, I am a brother and companion in suffering for Jesus. He says, you know, merely I'm, I'm going through the same thing as you. He says, I'm a companion in the suffering that are ours in Jesus. It's worded in a particular way to say that to be in Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, is to suffer. This isn't some aberration, some abnormality. This is the norm. This is what is to be expected. We saw it all through 1 Peter last term, didn't we? You're aliens and strangers in this world. Uh, Following a crucified king, you should expect to stand out. You should expect to be different, even to be rejected and suffer. And so if this is the case, the big question you might be asking is, well, why would I bother? Why would you continue being a Christian if it's only going to mean suffering? Or if you're new or visiting here, why would you start following Jesus if there's going to be some guarantee of suffering? I didn't come to church to make my life worse. I came to make my life better. Well, this is what the book of Revelation is meant to provide an answer to. Uh, Throughout this letter, it provides a heap of different reasons that you should stick with Jesus. We're given a big picture of all human history, showing where everything is truly headed and how God is the one who is victorious. We're reminded of his promises to those who trust him. And we're given uh, a vision of the end time, a time of a new creation with no mourning or crying or pain. All these are meant to give us a true perspective that enables us to continue on in the midst of our present suffering. But before he does any of that, our letter begins with a vision of Jesus himself. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus is like, seeing Jesus as he truly is, that's the thing we need most of all to stick with him and to keep trusting in him no matter what. So what do we see about Jesus? Well, First of all today, we see Jesus as the all-powerful reigning God. Uh, We'll continue from verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Now, as we were reading this, uh, you might have actually been a little bit confused uh, by all the different imagery there. We've got lampstands and, and sword mouths and fire feet. Uh, it's not a normal image uh, of anything that we're, we're used to seeing, is it? Uh, and the reason we're not used to it is it's because it's written in a, a writing style, a genre, uh, called apocalyptic writing, which was uh, quite common in Jewish circles back then. Uh, they used all these images and symbols uh, to convey deeper spiritual truth. It gives an overall vibe, an impression uh, that's meant to evoke in your head. So we're not meant to take it literally. Uh, we're meant to look at the symbols. What makes it so difficult for us as a style, though, is that much of the imagery, much of the symbols uh, are from a time, a different time and a different place. And so we aren't used to it. The good news is, though, most of the symbolism is actually either explained in the passage or we can find in the rest of the Bible. And so we're not left guessing what these things mean. And here, first of all, we see four descriptions that show Jesus as this all-powerful reigning God. The first is in verse 13, where Jesus is described as someone like a son of man. Now, for us today, that phrase doesn't really mean much. Son of man just makes you sound like a human. You're, you're a man who has a man as a dad. That's, that's you know, any, any male in the world is a, a man who has a man as a dad. That's, that's how it works. But this description, it comes from the Old Testament, straight from uh, Daniel chapter 7, another apocalyptic vision. Uh, and in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has an image of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, seated on his throne, about to judge the world. And just as he's opening the books, we read one like a son of man appears. Verse 13, in, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Look at how the Son of Man is described here. He's given all authority over all people, all the universe, for all eternity. He's going to reign forever. He's not just reigning as well, but all the nations and, and every people of every language will worship him. This figure is nothing short of God himself. That's who Jesus wants us to know he is, the one who has all authority, the one who everyone will one day worship. That's what he says, first of all, by describing himself as one like a son of man. 
And several other descriptions in our passage add to this. Uh, In verse 15, John says that his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Uh, Now, even today, we might be able to guess how some of that imagery works. Just think of the sound of a waterfall or or a flooding river, you know, uh, where the water is going so loud that you can't speak or hear. It's just overwhelming. It's an image of power. But again, it's not merely just some any old image of power. It's another image of God from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel uh, 43, uh, Ezekiel has a vision of God, and there, when he sees the glory of God coming from the east, his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. It's the same image from the Old Testament. That Old Testament imagery of the all-powerful reigning God is being applied to Jesus here. Or take the description of having hair on his head, white like wool. Uh, This again comes from Daniel 7. Although interestingly in Daniel 7, it's the Ancient of Days description uh, where he has uh, hair on his head that was white like wool. I think I skipped a slide there, forgive me. Um, Daniel 7 verse 9, white like wool. Uh, And indeed, uh, Jesus uses those very words Uh, to describe himself, to say, I am God. In verse 17, he says, I am the first and last. That's the slide that we're up to. And again, Isaiah 44, God's words for himself. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Over and over in the first part of this vision, Jesus is saying, I am he, I am God, I alone am God, I existed before all creation, I will exist after all things, and I control all history in between. Rome, it might look eternal, but Jesus is the eternal one. The emperor might seem all-powerful, but he is nothing before Christ. Caesar might demand you worship, but one day everyone will bow down and worship Jesus. Caesar might think that he's God, but there is only one. Jesus is saying, you haven't backed the wrong horse. You've sided with the one who reigns over all, for all history have the right view of Jesus. Uh, That's the first thing that this vision shows. Uh, The second really builds on this. Uh, You need to see Jesus as the all-conquering judge. And there are three descriptions of Jesus in our vision uh, that are meant to provoke the image of judgment and conquest, defeating uh, enemies. Uh, In verses 14 and 16, uh, the imagery of having eyes like blazing fire and and a sword coming out of uh, his mouth, these are both images of judgment. Uh, We actually know this is the case because they're used again in Revelation 19, um, chapter 19. Uh, From verse 12, uh, 11, sorry, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. 
with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's confirmed here that this image of Jesus with blazing fire eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth is to describe him in his role as judge and conqueror of all. It's actually a really scary image. Uh, the, the fire eyes uh, image is, is meant to convey that nothing will escape his gaze. There are no shadows in which you can hide, no dark corners in which you can take refuge. There'll, there'll be no secrets kept from him. He's able to pierce even the secrets of our heart. He has perfect knowledge when, it, when he comes to judge. And the sword imagery is one of conquering enemies, judging those who oppose him. But note, it's not a sword in his hand. It's not a real sword that he will come with. It's a sword coming out of his mouth. The idea is that he doesn't actually even need a real weapon. His very words are the weapon. This is the God of the universe, after all. He spoke and creation came to be. He speaks and the winds and the waves are stilled. He speaks and the nations will be defeated. Uh, We could keep going on and on with this. Uh, Similar imagery with uh, feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. It's this scary image of a a conqueror crushing enemies underfoot. And today, all all this language might make us uncomfortable. Uh, We don't like to think of this big, scary, judging Jesus. But to a church who are being cruelly persecuted, this would have been... Of great comfort. The Roman rulers, the the religious leaders, whoever it is that is persecuting you, Jesus is saying they won't get away with it. Justice will be served in the end. Christ will judge the world and defeat his enemies. And so again, stick with him. You're not just on the right side of history, but those opposing you mistreating you, causing you to suffer, they will be judged one day. That's our second image of Jesus, the all-conquering judge. And so far, we've got to say that the Jesus we've seen is pretty terrifying. I don't know about you. And unsurprisingly then, in verse 17, uh, John says that when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet dead. He's so terrified that he just falls flat on the ground. And this happens any time, almost every time uh, someone sees a vision of God, by the way. Uh, He's so powerful, so overwhelming in his majesty uh, that we just can't stand in his presence. But Jesus' response to John shows us another side of Jesus that we're also meant to know, that's also meant to help 
the original readers and us continue following him. He's not just the all-powerful God. He's not just the all-conquering judge. He's also our loving protector. Let's read from verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. As John falls flat on his face, confronted with Jesus' overwhelming presence, Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Now, first off, he's saying, You don't need fear me. Uh, Despite his power, despite his role as judge, Jesus says, you don't need to fear me if you're one of my people. But I think his words here are meant to go further than that. It's not just, don't be afraid of me. I think he's saying, don't be afraid in general. Because uh, after he says, don't be afraid, he'll go on to give a whole heap of reasons. Because I'm the first and last, the living and the dead, the one who has the keys to death and Hades. He's giving us reasons not to be afraid of anything. Why be afraid of Caesar when you've got the king of kings on your side? Why be afraid of death itself when you're with the one who has control over life and death? And so for the rest of the chapter, the rest of this vision, we're given several reasons why we shouldn't fear. He shows his love and protection, his care. I mean, first of all, he reaches out and places his hand on John. Don't look, overlook the significance of that. It's an act of comfort, love, familiarity. John's lying flat on the floor and this all-powerful God and judge stoops down to touch him, to reassure him. He's not a distant God, an uncaring God, too high and mighty to be concerned with lowly mortals like us. There's an intimacy in his care here. There's genuine care. Uh, Second, I'm going to cheat and jump out of the vision for a second. Uh, Back in the intro, in verse 5, he's described as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This all-powerful God uh, loves us so much that he became a man and died for us. He took the judgment that our rebellion against his rule deserves. He paid for our sins so that we can be right with him. That's the extent of his love, that he would die in our place, that he would take our judgment to free us from our sins. And third, in in verse 18, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus knows not only did I die, but I've risen again, conquering death. I now hold the keys to death and Hades. Rome, it might have the power to kill you, but I'm the one who has the power to bring you back to life again in the new creation. It's a promise that death won't be the end for the one who trusts Jesus. And while we wait that hope, the final part of our passage says, actually, Jesus is ongoingly involved in our lives, present among us as we gather as his people. Uh, Verse 19, John is told, write, therefore, 
what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here, Jesus explicitly explains that difficult bit of the vision that we can't just find in the Old Testament, where Jesus is standing in the centre and there's seven lampstands around him and he's holding seven stars in his hand. Uh, If you want a a good tip for reading Revelation, by the way, the bits that are explained like this, they're usually a bit more important. They're usually the bit that we're meant to focus in on a bit more. Um, And so what is the point here? Well, Jesus says the seven lampstands represent the churches and the seven stars are the the angels or messengers of these churches that he holds in his hands. And basically what Jesus is saying by this is, you aren't alone as you go through this suffering. I'm not a distant God. I'm not absent. I'm not unaware of what you are going through. I am with you as you struggle. I am with you day to day. I am in your midst. In fact, not just with you, but holding you. You are in my hands. I will not let you go. It reminds me of a story uh, I read a few years ago uh, about a young boy uh, from Florida who was attacked by an alligator. Simon had his crocodile story last week, so I figured I'd uh, continue the trend. Uh, now, I couldn't track down the original um, story, so I can't be 100% sure it's legit. Uh, but basically, the, the boy went swimming uh, one afternoon in a lake out the back of his house. And as he was swimming, his, his mum was watching on and saw that this alligator was, was starting to follow him. Uh, and so she, she yelled out to him and ran down uh, to grab him. And just as she was pulling him out, the alligator bit down on him as well. And although the alligator was, was big and strong, probably stronger than her, she held on for dear life uh, until all the screaming and all, all the commotion uh, attracted uh, some neighbours who came to, to help rescue the boy. And thankfully, he, he survived. And after a few months in hospital, and as you can imagine, uh, several, uh, many, many stitches, uh, he, he, he walked free, although with some horrible, horrible scars. And, and the reporter who uh, apparently wrote the original story um, asked the boy to show him the scars on his legs Uh, where the alligator bit him, and he did. Uh, But what was really cool, I thought, is that uh, after doing that, the boy wanted to show the scars he had on his arms. He said, look at my arms. I have great scars on my arms. I have them because my mum wouldn't let go. Now, I don't know if that story actually happened, uh, but for us, Jesus will do the same thing. He holds us in his hands and he will never let go. Nothing can snatch us from his grip. Your situation might look dire. They might actually be dire. The weight of the entire Roman Empire might be starting to bear down on you. And humanly speaking, you have no hope. But Jesus says, I'm holding you. I've got you. I'm with you. Trust me. This is the image of Jesus that he wanted the first century Christians to have 
to inspire them to keep going. This is the image of Jesus that we need if we are to keep going. And in fact, we need all three aspects of this image together. That They all work together. Because for some of us, we know Jesus' love. We know how much he cares for us. We know he intimately cares for us. Uh, but we don't necessarily have a full appreciation of his power and his judgment. For some of us, it's the opposite. We have a, a right view of Jesus' power and his rule, but we know how big he is, but we don't know his tender care, his gentle spirit. Either way, that's not a Jesus that you can trust. It's not a Jesus you can rely on, depend on. Because a Jesus who is all-powerful and reigns supreme and defeats his enemies, but isn't caring, well, I can't entrust myself to him. Because while he might have the power to save me, deliver me, sustain me, I've got no basis for confidence that he will do that. I've got no reason to trust he will come through for me. He could just as easily cast me aside, leave me in his wake, crush me under heel as well. I can't trust that Jesus. And yet a Jesus who is all-loving and genuinely concerned with us, but isn't all-powerful, who doesn't win in the end, well, he might care, but he can't deliver He's just a well-intentioned weakling. No, we need both. It's the Jesus who is God of all, who judges all, who defeats all his enemies, who can't be stopped, who reigns eternal. It's that Jesus who is the one who loves you and died for you, who is in our midst and holds us in his hand. That's why we can trust him. That's why we want to stick with him no matter what. And so as I wrap up now, if you're visiting today and this is the first time you've seen this image of Jesus, I want to encourage you to get on his right side, to get on the right side of history and know the safety and security of resting in the arms of the God of all who died for us. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, let's pray that we will continue to have this bigger view of Jesus, understanding him as the powerful reigning God of all, the conquering judge who loves us, protects us, has died for us, has risen for us, and is with us always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great image of Jesus in all his bigness and authority and glory and power, and yet also his tender love and concern for us. We pray that we would remember who Jesus truly is, that we would come to a greater appreciation of him. And whenever we're tempted not to follow him, whenever suffering might want us to make us want to give in, Lord, may this image of Jesus sustain us strengthen us to keep going and may we continue to entrust ourselves to him knowing that he cares and knowing that he will never fail us and we pray it all in his name amen